because the kingdom of God is very close to you. And I'm here to tell you that it's arrived. I'm inaugurating the kingdom of God. So repent, in other words, put down everything that you think about life and what you think is right and wrong and up and down and in and out and believe in me because I'm about to reframe the entire way you think this world operates. Isn't that exciting? In a world that operates by greed and fear and scarcity and oppression, Jesus is coming along and he's saying there's a different world in operation now and there's a different rule and I'm the king and I'm bringing that to come to pass. Isn't that great? That's good news because a lot of people in the world suffer. They suffer under the oppression of other people because of the greed of people, because of this idea of scarcity which creates fear in people and so fear drives them out of, into self-interest. And we are in a culture that is dominated by this idea of satisfying self and defining life by self and having your own way. Self-autonomy, the God of this Western culture. It's alive and well. Gods haven't died out with the Enlightenment period where they thought nothing that could not be empirically verified is true. No, gods are alive and well and people are worshipping but all sorts of altars. We just don't express them in uh, the kinds of art, <laughs> work of the hands that they used to do in ancient times. But nevertheless, people are worshipping something. At which altar do you worship? So Jesus proclaims this gospel. And then you know the first thing he does, he doesn't actually go out and teach. He doesn't go and deliver the unclean spirit. He doesn't go and heal. What does he do? He calls disciples. Do you think Mark is doing something significant here? Do you think there's a reason he's put that up front? I think so. Before he does anything, he takes people with him. You see, Mark is showing that discipleship is critical to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus makes it very explicit. He's not there just to do something of his own accord. He's there to train people up to walk in his ways so that they would talk, walk, think, smell, look, do, just like Jesus. This is discipleship. And so he takes disciples with him and so he takes them into the synagogue and here he is now going to the house of Simon and Peter with James and John. So in that first passage, as I said, all in a Sabbath day's work, we find, as, as is pretty typical of Mark, he, he unpacks a couple of events and then he comes in with these concluding kind of summary verses which we see in verse 32 that sundown they brought all the sick, the whole city, uh, city was gathered at his door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So we have this little story, just that individual story that's kind of pointing to something that is far greater than just the individual event. Now this story here is also part of an expression of what the kingdom of God is like. So notice that he says he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, he's going out in his ministry, and it's being demonstrated by the power over the unclean spirits and by the healings that are taking place. And you'll hear this quite often uh, if you stick with the journey of Mark, <laughs> that the Jews had an expectation of a Messiah, an anointed one, would come in a way and in a power that was expressed by military might or some kind of massive offensive against the oppressive rule of the, of, in that day, the Romans. And yet Jesus goes out and he starts delivering people of what I would regard as the true oppression that comes from the demonic world and from the healing of all kinds of disease and sickness. So he actually starts to illuminate ourselves to a reality that is greater than what we see on this physical world. And there is something that needs to take place in the hearts of humans that if it doesn't, will never fix what's going on on this planet. He gets to the heart of the message in chapter 7, you'll hear about it later, but he says the things that defile us are not what go in our mouths, it's what comes out of our hearts. And if you want to fix the world, well, you have to fix people, and if you want to fix people, you have to fix the problem of their heart. How do you do that? Only Jesus has the power to transform the heart of a human being. But he demonstrates this liberty 
this freedom from oppression, this healing. And these two stories I find fascinating because it's a Sabbath day and Jesus seems to disregard it, but what he's showing you is what is the spirit of the law is like. So the oppression of the guy who's been in that synagogue for goodness knows how long, suffering under the torment of that demon, is suddenly set free. And then he goes from a very public place to quite a private place. There's no crowd. There's no demonstration or anything grand. He just goes to a mother-in-law who's sick with fever and heals her. Now, I was curious about this because, um, firstly, it says that they immediately they go in. Now, immediately is another term that you're going to find popping up frequently in Mark's Gospel, especially in the first half. I think it adds that kind of racy edge. My guess is he's actually just taking Peter's way of preaching and putting it into writing. Because did you know that Mark was actually, I guess, a, a disciple of the Apostle Peter? And that it's believed, uh, I guess, as a general consensus, that Mark is taking what Peter uh, knew and taught about Jesus and putting it into the Gospel, into this Gospel. So it seems that this is part of, maybe, the way Peter used to preach. Quite dramatic, exciting. It's, it's on the move. It's dynamic. So immediately they enter the house and immediately they go to the mother-in-law and it doesn't say it here, but in the Greek text it has it again. It says immediately the spirit left her. And I thought, wow, this is powerful. But I thought, why on earth were Simon and James and John so concerned that they immediately told Jesus about the mother-in-law? Because they're hungry. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think that's exactly the problem. Now, you may laugh. I thought this was pretty hilarious. But, well, I didn't think it was hilarious. I thought it was amazing. If you've ever been to India or to the Middle East, you'll notice that food is a critical part of their hospitality. You know, you go overseas in some of these places and you discover that we don't really understand hospitality. You walk, you put your foot in the door of some of these places and you cannot sit down before they've brought out the tea and the biscuits and the food and the cakes and... They're asking you, are you hungry? You know, this is a, it's, it's a demonstration of honour. They have a very high honour culture. And it's, it's a high demonstration of hospitality. And it may well be, you know, I've, I've actually done a little research. So I'm either confessing my ignorance or lack of being able to find uh, written work on this. <laughs> or maybe some people haven't picked up on it. But it seems to me that the mother-in-law being sick isn't just oh, well, she's sick. It's actually something that could bring dishonour to the home. Because when you have a guest, guess who would normally prepare the food? And if you don't prepare the food and you have a guest in your house, what's going to happen? In their culture, that would actually be a sign of dishonour. So I th I, this is what I think is going on. They walk into the house... They realise Jesus is coming with them and they're going, oh, what are we going to do? Simon's mother-in-law is sick. I like, oh, know, we'll tell Jesus and we'll see what he does. So they go and tell Jesus and Jesus immediately goes and heals her and they get up and she starts serving them. Just the grace of God that healing is not just a physical thing, but he is, healing takes a holistic dimension. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed the story of the leper which comes on the, another page? It's not just that he heals the leper, it's that he sees with compassion and he puts out his hand and embraces the leper. He restores him to his community, to his family. He brings him back to be embraced again by a community that had cast him, put him outside the community, rejected him. It's not just the disease that's killing this guy. It's the fact that he's been completely segregated from any sense of community and belonging. One of the most powerful things I remember seeing in the scriptures is the fact that in the Jewish pre-Christian days, the reason they were so particular about the law is because if you touched anything unclean, guess what happened to you? You got unclean. It made you sick. When Jesus touches the unclean, what happens? They become clean. The power of a sickness, disease, sin. It's astonishing. 
And one of the greatest challenges that we face, I think, is recognising that this is not just something that Jesus was doing to exalt himself. He's got disciples alongside him because he's saying, if you become my disciple and follow me, this is what you're called to do. Which brings me to part two of today's message. Because it's one thing to hear this story and to hear the drama and get excited about what Jesus can do. But as soon as you start putting this out there as something that is supposed to be normative for the Christian followers of Jesus, well, you're going to stir up some trouble, aren't you? So I thought I might do a little stirring today. <laughs> um, you ask the question, is healing for today? And you are going to get a very diverse uh, response from people. And so I thought, you know, sometimes people preach on healing and they have a healing service and they pray. But I, I think I was saying, I was trying to figure out what is it that I'm to do here today? And I just felt like I wanted to put in a certain foundation and maybe kick out some wrong thinking. Because you as a people, I'm not your pastor. You're, but you are a community that have committed to this place and you're looking for someone to lead you. But you as a community are going to have to decide whether or not you want to pursue the fullness of discipleship. That's your choice. I can't make that for you. I just want to lay down some things for you so that you might hopefully walk out of here seeing a little more clearly and understanding what is actually available to you and hopefully that'll make you excited. I really do. My journey has been a process through this, so I by no means speak as an authoritarian on the subject. I am absolutely a beginner and learning and working through this process. But I can testify to you that God has healed me of certain things in my life. He's healed me from physical conditions. He's healed me from some pretty difficult soulish problems. You know, we all get wounded in life. And it's amazing how those wounds affect us and continue to bind us and cause us to sin, make us critical. So it's not just that... Um, so I come with my own experience and I have studied theology, <laughs> so I have some understanding of the different views on this subject. So I want to bring some of that to bear to you today. And of all the things we could look at, we could look at biblical and theological stuff, we could look at the historical angle, we could look at experiential, we could look at pastoral, but for some reason I felt like I needed to park in this area of biblical and theological foundation. Because it doesn't matter what you experience or what you think, if you're not set well in that place, you're going to find that actually moving into these places of believing in the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and seeing healings and wonders follow the preaching of the gospel, um, you're going to find that you're going to trip up, stumble, have doubts, question yourself, um, be knocked off track, find people are going to actually undermine your faith and your belief. So it's really important that we have a good understanding of Scripture. And that question is, is healing for today? One of the biggest barriers to that, that I see, and I believe amongst the body of Christ, is this doctrine of cessationism. Has anyone heard that word before? Anyone? Anyone? Now, it may be odd, because I've met some of you, and I see that you're a believing people, and that you have faith. So I just was curious as to why God has brought me to address this. I'm not really sure. But I guess if this is if something that you do pursue, then you're going to find that people will challenge you. And even if you don't believe in this doctrine, which I'm about to unpack for you, then you're going to find that if it, even the suggestion of it can cause you to move into doubt and question your faith and whether or not God intends for people to be healed today as part of normative Christian living. So, let's see how we go. I'm going to outline this argument. I'm going to give you some of their um, reasons why they don't believe healing is for today. And then I'm going to give you the reasons why I think they're not really that solid a foundation and more importantly, why I'm compelled to believe more and more that as disciples of Jesus, salvation, that healing is not just peripheral to salvation, it is central and part of our salvation. 
So the arguments that justify the doctrine of cessation, at least what they propose. The first one is, when they look at the book of Acts, one of their arguments is to say that Luke was trying to write to demonstrate that it was uniquely the apostles' business to be doing the signs and wonders. In other words, healings and signs and wonders was exclusively in the domain of being an apostle. So they'll quote Acts 2.43, which is just following the day of Pentecost, where it says, And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Acts 5.11-12. This is just after, by the way, Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lie to the Holy Spirit about their giving, and they drop dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hence, a great fear came upon all the church. <laughs> And upon as many as heard these things, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among these people. It's this, it's this specific identification of these signs and wonders being done by the apostles. It comes up again in Acts 15 verse 12, where Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem at a council wondering what to do about these Gentiles that have become Christian, and they're wondering how does the law fit all into this. Anyway, in the midst of that uh, council, the assembly falls silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so this is their argument. They're saying that it was exclusively um, the domain of the apostles. Just a slight problem I have with that. Because if you turn to Acts chapter 6, you'll notice there's the first martyr called Stephen. Do you know how Stephen is essentially introduced to us? It says that Stephen was a man full of grace and power was, and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Do you know Stephen's not an apostle? But here he is, the scriptures testifying that he was doing signs and wonders. There's someone else who comes on the scene and he goes to Samaria, an evangelist called Philip. And he's doing such miraculous signs and wonders that he's converting all these Samaritans and then they send down the apostles to verify what's going on and then lay on the hands for the impartation of the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's curious about this is that it's clear Philip is not an apostle. And yet he is operating in these signs and wonders of such a great degree that it converts a whole community. So up front, to argue that the, the signs and wonders was exclusively the domain of just the apostles doesn't really stand up. The third point... It, and maybe this is just me, it's a small point, but Luke did write that this book, the full title of his book of Acts, is actually the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So perhaps I shouldn't be surprised that there's not much else about the people outside of the Apostles being spoken, yet funnily enough, he doesn't even write about all the Apostles. <laughs> he really only focuses on Peter and Paul. So what were the other 11, 12, 13 doing because Barnabas gets a mention but he wasn't part of the 11 and he wasn't the 12th that re replaced Judas and John is there when Peter heals the paralytic at the gates when they're going up to the temple to worship but we really don't hear a lot about the other apostles so there's a lot of silence there and when you start building an argument for silence you need to kind of just be a little cautious it doesn't mean that it's not wrong. It's just that you can't make an argument from silence. The second one is 2 Corinthians 8, where it talks about love never ends. I'm just going to turn there. 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 13. This is another one. Now, this is a little broader than healing itself. This is actually talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 8, it reads this. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For those who hold to this cessationist doctrine, they'll argue that the perfect is actually this New Testament. The canonization of Scripture. And they believe this is what it's saying. But I find it interesting, firstly, I'm not sure Paul was aware of anything called a New Testament. I don't even know if he was aware that the letters he was writing was going to become canonical scripture. That happened about uh, 300 so years after Paul had been around. It was a long process. But the second thing is, if you read this a little more closely, it goes down and it says, a little further on, 
Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This seems to me to be pointing to the fact that when prophecies cease, pass away, tongues and knowledge, it's actually referring to when Christ returned, because that's when we see fully, that's when we see perfect. We see the perfection of Christ. Moreover, straight after this, he goes straight into exhorting the people to pursue love, yes, but also eagerly desire the gifts, especially prophecy. It's an odd thing to say if you're saying this stuff will cease. So really, he could have said, well, it's going to cease. Don't really bother about it. But on the back of this, he's saying, no, pursue it. It's really important. Why is it important? It's because through the prophetic gift, people are encouraged, exhorted, lifted up, built up by the power of the Spirit. Furthermore, I believe it's supposed to be a communal gift. So, you know, one question people might have is, well, are we all supposed to be like Jesus and manifesting exactly that? I said, no, I actually don't think that. I think the body is. I think the body is supposed to express all the manifold dimensions of who Jesus is. I don't think God's intent was to have one disciple. He puts 12 together so they have to work it out for themselves and figure out how to be unified with all their diversity and with all their humanness. How do they come into the unity of the Spirit and express the manifold dimensions of Christ? That's just a little bit about how I see the way God has intended um, the body to work. So I don't think it stands on the fact that Luke was saying the apostles, it was only for the, the apostles. I don't think this passage in Corinthians is saying that these gifts are supposed to end. The third one that they present is to argue that the purpose of the signs and wonders were to authenticate and accredit the authority of the apostles' teachings, which is now the New Testament. I do have, uh, again a little struggle with this one because later in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9 one of the things that happens is someone is casting out demons in Jesus' name but they're not part of the group and the disciples come and say hey, should we stop this guy? he's not one of us, what's he doing? and you know what Jesus says? do not stop him for one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon be able afterward to speak evil of me well this is fascinating firstly Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. He's quite happy for people to go and take his name and cast demons out in his name. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that amazing, the power of Jesus' name to do that? Secondly, if you've got the apostles here and they're given the signs and wonders to authenticate their teaching, what happens if that seal of authentication starts appearing over here? What are you going to do? What about that guy's teaching? Surely, if the signs and wonders authenticate the Bible and the teaching of the apostles, then this guy over here, who is also demonstrating signs and wonders, ought to have his teaching authenticated. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> so I don't think that this is necessarily a sound argument. Matthew 7, 21, 23 is another instance that I find both incredibly challenging on a personal level, but also quite enlightening Jesus is saying not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day right, that day as in judgment day the end when he brings everyone together to face him and to make an account for their lives many will say to me Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness this is uh, uh, how do I say it's quite a sobering piece of scripture because if you're going to pursue the gifts Bear in mind that Jesus isn't really, uh, how do I put this rightly? Pursuing the gifts is not the primary purpose of your life, knowing Jesus is. In the 19 years that I've been a Christian, for whatever reason, God made it clear in my heart that my primary goal in life needed to be know God and then know his will. And I, for whatever reason, I guess I was so shocked 
at becoming a Christian in the first place because I really didn't want to go to a church and certainly didn't want to become a Christian. So I think I just said yes. <laughs> but what I found over time is that my heart's desire is to become like Jesus and it's been the pursuit of my life ever since. But along the way, what I've discovered is God has started to unfold certain gifts and he's brought healings into me. And on occasion, we're sealing healing with other people. And our desire is to actually move more into that. So I never want to forget that the goal in life is not to be out there doing signs and wonders because I read this and I realize that you can get very lost doing it. But that's not why I'm talking about this scripture. I'm pointing to it because Jesus is saying, on the last day, there will be many. There will be many who have done this. Many throughout history will have done signs, wonders and prophesied in his name and yet he's saying, depart from me. So Jesus isn't saying, well that can't have happened. <laughs> Wasn't doing it by my name. He's actually saying, impl explicit, implicitly saying, yes, I know. You took my name and you used it for your purpose and for your glory and for your own benefit. But you never knew me. The reason why I bring this up is that people were operating in the gifts but it had nothing to do with authenticating their teachings. And it seems to me that Jesus actually expects the gifts to continue to operate throughout history. There are other arguments I realise to this question but we haven't really got to me explaining why we don't see them in the church. And this is what one cessationist that I read would argue. I doubt the gifts of miracles and healings exist today for it isn't evident that men and women in our churches have such gifts. Certainly God can and does heal at times but where are the people with these gifts? The funny thing is if you're in a church and a tradition that teaches the gifts don't operate what are the chances you're A going to see it and B going to hear about it? You're not. So he's arguing, well, where are they? I said, well, the problem is you don't teach it and you don't believe it. So why would they be? <laughs> it's a bit of a circular argument. It says, oh, I don't see it, therefore it doesn't happen. But they don't happen because you don't teach it, therefore you don't see it. So, so it doesn't work. And the other thing is, I don't think the goal is to bring the scripture down to our level of experience. If that was the case, when I became a Christian, I would quickly become an unchristian. <laughs> Because my experience prior to meeting Jesus was like, this isn't true. No, no, the goal is actually that we would be conformed to his word. Now that does present its challenges because you have humans, teachers, presenting their scripture to you. But one of the reasons that Paul talks about you don't need any teacher, I think it's Paul, might be Peter. Someone can remind me later, correct me. He says, you, don't need a you do not need a teacher for the Holy Spirit is your teacher. He's not saying you don't need teachers because it's a teacher teaching that you don't need, the Holy you don't need a teacher, right? So it's not that you know, we don't have teachers. Why on earth would we have teachers in the body if he's saying the Holy Spirit is our teacher? What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who witnesses to your heart and will teach you. So you can actually submit me, submit your teachers to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, you shouldn't be taking my word as gospel. You should be taking Jesus' word as gospel and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate. Because the Holy Spirit will bear witness to you. So this word is a witness, and the Holy Spirit also should bear witness that it is true. So we need a body of people that have the humility to submit to teaching yet have the discernment to listen to the Holy Spirit and bear witness so we can correct one another and bring people under the authority of the word. Because my authority is not because I'm a teacher. My authority comes from God and it comes from this word. I don't have any authority outside of this. It doesn't exist. It's only what Jesus gives me and it's only if it's in accordance with his will and his word. So the question about experience is like, well, that's not really a, a great argument. So then the compelling reasons, we ought, they ought to be part of the body of a Christ. I've kind of alluded this, to this already about talking about discipleship. 
And it seems clear to me that Jesus intended for the continuation of not only his preaching, but for his works as well. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them works. That's the work of the ministry. He intends to continue it. So he sends out the 12 to preach and to heal. We have that in Mark. It also occurs in Luke. But also in Luke, this is in chapter 9 and 10, he also sends out another 72, and they do exactly the same thing. So again, far beyond the apostles, we see 72 others called to go out in pairs to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and call people to repent, because the kingdom of God is here. Now even John Piper, who I, a man I greatly respect, I've listened to so many sermons of his, uh, he's an incredible teacher, and yet he sits on the side, leaning toward a cessationist. But I love listening to him. And yet it's interesting that he will even acknowledge, because I did read up what he had to say about this whole subject, um, that the preaching of the kingdom and healing were to be together. So for him, he even sees that in scripture. I have a great respect for the man, a humility to actually, even with his tradition, humble himself to say and recognize certain things that are in scripture. In Matthew, it then talks about the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Well, if we take that healings and signs and wonders to be accompanying the preaching of the gospel, then implicit in this statement is that healings and signs and wonders will follow the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. But just in case you're not sure about that, at the end of the gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 16, it says this, Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. This is not a licence to go into your laundry cupboard and pick out the first bottle of poison and give it a crack. <laughs> Out of date foods. Oh, you are, you've gotten a chance to check. <laughs> Depends on how much faith you have. <laughs> Why do I bring the scripture up? Okay, so one of the things that cessationists talk about is the fact that this is our ultimate authority and the infallible word of God. They hold it very dear, and that is an admirable thing. But they also say the gifts and the signs and wonders have ceased. Well, this creates a little problem because right in the infallible word of God, it declares these signs will accompany those who believe. So you either have to readdress your position about whether or not signs and wonders are supposed to be normative for Christian faith, or you're going to have to do something with this text. Now, You'll notice in, in your copies, it often says something along the lines of some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Uh, and that's just, just, just a fact about the manuscripts. But if you then decide to argue as a cessation as well, this isn't supposed to be, this isn't really part, so we can just ignore it. It's, 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 not, it's not really valid because it didn't exist in the early manuscripts. You now have a different problem because you're now challenging your concept of the infallible word of the New Testament. You can't have it both ways. You can't hold this up as it is written, as we've received it from the canon that happened 1,600 years ago, and say this is the infallible word of God, and then get to something that counters your tradition or your doctrine, and then argue, well, actually, this isn't part of it. This is not new. People do this all the time. We do it all the time. We have lenses. We don't realise it. We come to the scripture with our lenses. They're cultural. We come with tradition. We come with our personal experience. And it's only when you discover things that offend you, <laughs> things that don't agree with you, things that make you uncomfortable in the word, that's only when you're starting to discover how you are just so not conformed <laughs> to the word of Jesus. But the way the Holy Spirit works is, is he's quite excited about that because he's a master at transforming you, which is why this whole transformation process is supposed to begin with the mind. Because our spirits are born anew, but apparently we have a problem with the way we think. 
And yes, we are back at that statement that Jesus made, repent. Repent, change the way you think. It's not a horrible thing, it's actually exciting. There's relief, <laughs> there's, there's freedom, there is wholeness, there is a casting off the bonds of sin, there is freedom from and healing from the wounds that have been afflicted against you by those who have been sinned against you. And yes, there is bodily healing because the Jews would never separate the body and the soul and the spirit in the manner that we do in our Western 21st century culture. Which is why, if you look up the word salvation, it has a far more holistic view of what that means as opposed to this very narrow one-dimensional spiritual salvation that happens at the end of life and really life just carries on as it is. So it seems to me this is a pretty compelling reason why um, it ought to be normative. Uh, there's other passages that I think are also compelling. A couple of my favourite. Uh, John chapter 14 verses 11 and 12. Just listen to what it, Jesus is saying here. Verse 11, chapter 14. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves, right? Believe on the account of the works themselves. You know what works he's referring to? Anyone? Signs, wonders, healings, casting out, okay? So this is the works that Jesus is referring to. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. All right, so let's just pause there for a moment. I've been reading scholarship on this and I am astounded at how many people can read and affirm the fact that the works that Jesus refers to that affirm the fact that the Father is in him and he is in the Father are indeed the works of the signs and wonders. But something happens between 11 and verse 12 in some of the commentaries. It seems like they get amnesia and all of a sudden they can't understand what are the works that we are supposed to do. And one of the problems with the chapter and verse setting is, is that this has come to us at a far later date than when these manuscripts were first written. Has anyone seen a, a, an original text? It's all capitals. <laughs> There's no breaks. It's in Greek, by the way, as well. Not English, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Sorry if that shocks anyone this morning. <laughs> English was not the first language of Jesus. Um, but there's, so there has been this division of Scripture... And I guess I, I really appreciate it because can you imagine if we're, <laughs> we'd spend half the morning, okay, guys, we're looking for the, about the middle of the Gospel of John, and we're like, okay, is everyone there? Probably spend 10 minutes trying to find it. At least the references make that a quick job for us so we can all get to the same place and not uh, have too much problem getting there. But what I find fascinating is that, firstly, the Greek word for works is the same in both verses. Secondly, that scholars will agree that, generally, that this, uh, what Jesus is talking about, the works that he does are the works of the miracle signs and wonders and yet they get amnesia when it says what are the these anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I do that's confrontational on a couple of levels firstly it's it just shows you that scholars also come with their own lens and I suspect because cessationism has come out of a Protestant tradition that's the reason I'm probably reading too much Protestant theology <laughs> yeah. Some of you might get disturbed by that, I don't know. There are other denominations. Uh, there's the Catholics, they're still around. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox, anyone know them? No? <laughs> so it's right in your face. So when you see that, it's very challenging because then you look at your personal experience and say, what are we going to do? Galatians chapter 3. I'll be finishing up in a couple of minutes. Chapter five, uh, chapter three, verse five. It says, "Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith?" This is not talking about the Apostle Paul doing miracles he's talking about is the one as in the father who sends the spirit to you and by the spirit is doing signs and wonders among you is that because you're doing works or is that by faith uh, let me clarify by hearing with faith you start to put these pieces together and you realize actually 
the audacity of Jesus to believe that we, in 21st century human history, Western culture, as disciples of Jesus, ought to be doing the same works that he did. Granted, I, I don't expect that there'll be one person that will have this full manifestation of all the powers of Jesus. But as a body of Christ, I think it ought to be expected and pursued. Now, as soon as you put that on the table, here ends the lesson on the theological, philosophical <laughs> side of things. We step into this whole world of experience, of pastoral care, of how, how you manage that. And I think one of the biggest barriers or one of the greatest fears that we all have and struggles with pursuing healing is disappointment. I think some of the reason it's dead is because people have tried and prayed and it just hasn't worked. Now, I don't have time to actually answer that question for you. I'm going to leave it hanging. But I can tell you right now, if you don't sort out that question, what are you going to do when it doesn't work? Yeah.
guitarras que eles me